morning. Let's keep reading from the word of the Lord, uh, now from Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, This is the word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's sure and it's steadfast. We thank you that it cuts through all the fog and confusion of the world around us, and it speaks directly to our hearts, the word we need to hear. We thank you for these words from the Apostle Paul. And so we ask, just as Paul himself prayed for his first readers, we ask with him that you'd fill us with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that we too could walk worthy of you, fully pleasing you, and being fruitful in every good work. In Jesus' name, amen. I need to start uh, my message this morning with a <clears throat> sort of a confession, which is that I didn't choose this passage or write this or pre- prepare this message for you all, I'm afraid to say, at least not primarily. As many of you know, my family and I have been serving in ministry in a a country, North Africa, that's overwhelmingly Muslim. And after several years of learning Arabic and getting established there, we are more and more stepping out into our calling as ambassadors of Christ, ambassadors of the king. And, And as an ambassador, I go out into the world each day with a message that, at least to my mind, is full of hope, and salvation, and love. But I'm trying to convey it to people who don't see it in quite the same light, right? So they, many of them see it as a message that's fanciful and superstitious. Uh, it's a message for many of them that's been undermined and, and shouldn't, like a thinking person shouldn't accept the message that I have to bring. And even more than that, it's a message that if, if someone were to accept it, in the context I work, it would add more trouble and hardship on top of a life that's already pretty hard to start with. And so there are times, honestly, when I ask myself, why, why am I here? What, what's the point of what I'm trying to do? Is it worth it for me to be spending my life in this way? And even more, 
is it worth it for them to consider these things I want them to say, consider the, the word of the Lord? And in fact, aren't they pretty decent folks in the first place? Which is all to say, I first prepared these words around these verses for myself to help me answer that question um, or these kind of questions. But I think it's also something I do want to share with you because I think there, although our worlds are pretty different, there might be some parallels uh, there as well. Maybe um, you too have friends, uh, neighbors, colleagues, family members you know and love whom you wish would encounter our Savior Jesus. But at times you also think, you know, maybe, maybe they seem to be doing okay with the life they have. Do they really need Jesus? Like we say they need Jesus, quote-unquote, but, but what does that mean? Do, do I feel that that's actually true? In what way is that true? And maybe they're going to think all this religious talk is just silly or it's not for them. Or maybe, I don't know you all, I know some of you, and more of you know me than I know you, I'm afraid. Um, but maybe some of you are on the fence about what the Bible has to say at some point. I mean, it, it is, it strikes our world at least as pretty extreme sometimes when it talks about sin and judgment and how Jesus is the only way. Um, sure, you're not perfect, but you're, you're pretty decent, right? You're better than the next guy maybe. All of that to say, I think this morning, what I need and what I hope you, will help you as well is, is getting a glimpse of God's perspective on the world. When God looks at this world, when he looks at men and women across the world in villages in North Africa, in Opelousas, and he tells us what he sees when he sees regular people, what do we hear? And that's what we get in the first, especially the first verses of Ephesians 2, which is really where I'm going to focus. I know this chapter, this, this passage gets, kind of goes from bad to good, but our focus is actually going to be on the first three verses because here I think we get one of the places in Scripture where God gives us the most direct view or, or sort of a divine diagnosis of people, of human beings, of people like us and our neighbors. And the first thing I want us to see, and, and part of why I'm sure this message applies to you all, as it does to me, is the fact that this is a diagnosis Paul gives for everyone, for all people, everywhere, all places, and all times. Because, as you may know, Paul is a Jew, right? A Jew of all Jews. But he's writing this letter to the Ephesians, a city in modern-day Turkey. And from what we know, Probably the, many of his audience would not have been ethnic Jews, but would have been uh, Gentiles of some sort, so, so non-Jews. And if you, if you take Ephesians as a whole, you'll see this theme of Jew versus non-Jew is actually comes into play in a lot of what he has, has to write. And it comes into play in these verses, too, because he starts by giving this sort of diagnosis to his readers or for his audience, right? That first word in the first verse is you. He says, you all, you all, y'all, I guess maybe people would say, are, we're dead in trespasses and sins. And I can imagine maybe a fellow Jew sitting there with Paul as he's writing this and thinking, yeah, that's right. 
Uh, you tell them, Paul, those people who don't know God and aren't Jewish and so on, like, they're really messed up. But he doesn't end there, right? Because he, he, uh, he keeps writing and he writes verse 2, and then he gets to verse 3, and he changes the, the tune changes a little bit because he says, among whom, what? Verse 3 there, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And still speaking of we all, he says, we all were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And by the time we get to verse 5, that first statement, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, has changed to we we're dead in our trespasses. And so he's, he's including himself, a good Jew, right, into this whole picture and saying, this is, this is true for me too. It's true for us. And, and in, it, in short, if, if Paul can say what he's saying is true for the Gentiles and it's true for the Jews, then at the end of the day, that means it's true for everybody. I mean, in, in his world, that was the big division. Either you're one side or the other if you're a human being. What it means for us, you know, that division isn't the main thing in our minds today, but it, the, the main point applies, which is what he's saying is true for every person. Whatever box you fall into, wherever you are, whatever your religious background, whether you're atheist, Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, New Age, secular, even culturally Christian, rich or poor or black or white or Chinese or young or old, everybody fits into this box that he's talking about. Everyone, if, you, if you're a person... If you're here this morning, these are words that apply to you, maybe in the past, maybe still today, but they apply, and to everyone around us. And unfortunately, as you all know, the diagnosis Paul gives for people in this world is not very hopeful. It's not very good, because he doesn't say, he doesn't say we're really messed up. He doesn't say we're a little ignorant and need some extra information he doesn't say we're sick and we need some healing although that that is a biblical imagery elsewhere but Paul says if we really get to the root of the problem here and we if we had one word to write on the diagnosis he says the word is death or dead you were dead in the trespasses and sins you once walked and if we had missed it in verse one he says it again in verse five you were uh, it when we even when we were dead in our trespasses. And I'm so concerned, this is really the main point, I'm so concerned as we read this that many of us, we've heard this kind of thing before, and subconsciously we're sort of, we take that as a a nice Christian religious thing to say, and it kind of loses some of its punch. Like, yes, that's right. Christians say we as, we're Christians, so you know if you're not with Christ, you're dead, or we're spiritually dead, and we have this sense of like being spiritually dead is sort of vague and not really real to us. You know, like if you saw a dead body, you would know that person's dead, and you would feel that. But if you say someone's spiritually dead, you kind of feel like okay, that's true, but kind of distant, or what does that mean? Or and then you live your life, and you see everyone shopping at the grocery store next to you and your neighbors and your cousin and like you see them alive they're living you can't they're not dead in that sense and so this idea of being spiritually dead sort of fills this space of okay i say that but it 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 doesn't strike home and um what i hope we can do together this morning what i want to do is help us get 
really take that, look that straight in the face and say, what is he talking about when he says that? And is, it, is this just some pious Christian re- exaggeration when he says people are, are dead? Or is it something that is actually true and meaningful and real and significant? And to help us, um, and, and maybe for you that's a real question you should be asking and not assuming you know the answer right now. Uh, I, I want to tackle it sort of as a real, a real question. But to help us, to help us kind of grapple with Paul, what Paul is saying, I think we should be reminded that what Paul is saying isn't something new. In fact, it's a restatement of some of the very first thing God, some of the very first things God says to us as people, which is why we read from Genesis. Because when God created Adam and Eve and he gave them all sorts of good things and life and a character that reflects his image and love and other people and all good things, he warned them also in the day you turn away from my path and my life and our relationship and obedience, in that day you will surely die. Right? He said it very clearly. Eve even repeated it. And actually we face the same sort of dilemma as we do when we deal with what Paul said about being spiritually dead, which is in the day that they ate the tree, they didn't die. God, I mean, we, we read it. They didn't die physically or biologically. They didn't uh, keel over, they remained alive, at, at least alive enough to, to hide from God. They remained alive enough to feel shame. They, they were, were alive enough to shift the blame to other people, right? They were alive enough to uh, bring life to new generations. If you read the next chapters, Genesis 4, 5, and 6, we see more generations of people who are alive, at least they're active, they're biologically alive, but alive in what way? Reading, I mean, those are some rough chapters, Genesis, those next chapters in Genesis. They're alive enough to, to feel anger and hatred. They're alive enough, ironically, to kill each other. They're alive enough, actually, to make poetry, exalting their own power and, and wickedness. And alive enough to fill the world with their evil thoughts and their evil actions. Is that life in its truest sense or not? And what God was saying in Genesis is the same as Paul. And that is, it's a message to us as well that that isn't genuine life. That's not life in its truest sense or its fullest sense. In fact, that's more like ongoing spiritual death you know and to be spiritually dead means to be really dead or to be dead in the most important way anyone can be dead or alive uh, is to be spiritual spiritually dead so what Paul's telling us in these verses uh, doesn't go beyond what God said in the very beginning it's not a new message Uh, he's just bringing it to us again but what he does do something more than Genesis he unpacks it a little bit and I believe the way he unpacks it and fleshes us out and describes it actually makes it more compelling and understandable. Because he doesn't just say, you were dead and Jesus made you alive. He, he sits on that idea for a few verses. And I think he gives us maybe three angles or ways of coming to grips with this idea of being spiritually dead. Um, actually, just two of them are in these verses. Uh, but a third one comes later in Ephesians, and I want to bring it in 
as well. So I'll tell you right up front what are these three kind of aspects or ways in which he talks about us being dead, and then we can walk through them. The first thing Paul says is that to be characterized by sin and wickedness is death. He also says, parallel to that, to be ruled by evil is death. And finally, and we'll get this in a couple of chapters, we'll bring it in from Ephesians 4, to be separated from the life of God is death. So that's what we're, we're going to go through in the next minutes. And I think the first point is maybe the most repeated in God's word, which is anything, anyone characterized by sin and wickedness and evil, that is, is truly to be dead. It's right there in verse 1. The death he's speaking of is a death in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And later in verse 3, he kind of explains further, I think, that same idea. Whom uh, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So there's this link that exists between sin and death, evil and death. Of course, we know that's a theme across God's word. We saw it in the beginning in Genesis uh, another prominent place I think of is in Deuteronomy, like the climax of Deuteronomy. Moses had just sort of reiterated the law, and he's giving the people of Israel one last charge. And uh, I think many of you might remember this in Deuteronomy 30. He says, see, I have set before you today life and good, and the opposite side is death and evil. Right? So life and goodness are one package, or ought to be. And on the other side is the reality that death and evil are intermingled. Life is only life if it's actually a life of goodness. And, and what you have if you have evil is actually some kind of death. So it's not new, because it's the main point in, in Deuteronomy also. And he describes this sin and evil and wickedness by the words trespasses and sins. And that reminds us that this kind of evil, it, there are some definitions for it. it. God gives us rules and laws and words. And to trespass those is to enter into sin. But it's more than just a few acts in which people like us kind of do the wrong thing. It's not just a list of a few things that you or I or others have done. Paul actually, he kind of brings in another angle or fleshes it out in verse 3 when he says, he describes this life of sin as a life that's following the passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of our body, of the body and the mind. And even the way he writes there, it's clear he's not talking about being inactive. You know, death, again, is not the absence of activity here. It's actually to be very active in certain ways. It's to be dominated and driven and motivated by certain passions and desires and a certain mindset. Desires of the flesh and what you might say is the fleshly mind. And you probably know, many of you, that the word flesh in Paul doesn't just mean what we think of as kind of physical temptations. Uh, Flesh is a little bigger. Talking about the whole bundle of human uh, motivations and our nature, as it stands, separated from God, self-centered, evil, corrupt, self-seeking, 
For in light of the two great commandments, our flesh is our natural self as it seeks itself instead of God and seeks itself instead of love for others. All that means is we're not just looking for specific sins that people commit as a a pointer that, you know, this person is dead because they did this or they did this one thing. It's really our whole selves that Paul, our whole beings from the inside out that he's talking about. And he does use this idea of flesh and the uh, passions of the flesh and the body and the mind. And I think it is good to remember that what we think of as bodily temptations is a big category of sinfulness that Paul is concerned about and God is concerned about. Later in this same letter, he'll talk about sensuality. He'll talk about sexual immorality. He'll talk about drunkenness with wine. Just a few examples of the way human beings easily become driven by certain appetites and desires and and motivations. And frankly, if you look at the world around you, around us, or even in our own hearts and the temptations that are still there, isn't it true that what many people call life isn't much more than a, a desperate pursuit for some kind of physical satisfaction and pleasure with the God who made them kind of pushed politely off to the side? Whether it's food or drink or sexual pleasure or a comfortable lifestyle or the next vac- vacation or the best deals on Amazon or for, for some people, the thing that's really pushing their life forward isn't much more than self-indulgence of certain appetites. Maybe more or less respectable, but, but not much more than that. At the same time, it's not just those kind of sins that he's talking about. He even uses, I think, by using that word mind, desires of the body and the mind, he tips us off that uh, no one gets off the hook by being sort of self-controlled and, and decent. Right, Because there's kinds of evil desires and motivations that are less visible or less physical but are no less destructive to us. Things like pride and hatred and envy and self-centeredness and things like that. The same writer Paul in Colossians 2, he's warning the church about people who are very ascetic, trying not to give in to their physical desires and with rules like don't handle and don't taste and don't touch. And what does he say about that? He says, those have the appearance of wisdom, but are no value, of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That same word, but here he's saying it's not that kind of flesh, maybe, but other kinds of indulgences of their heart. You can, be, you can, you can live a moderate life and be driven by, internally, an indulgence of your own vanity and who you are and being the, the kind of person you want to be. You can live a decent life and be indulging in, in your self-importance and internally denigrating everyone else around you. So whether the sin or the evil that he's talking about here is in, or in anyone's life is, is sort of mainly this corruption or domination of our physical appetites, or if it's more uh, kind of less physical but more heart level or mental pride and envy and hatred, if that's what's really captured someone's heart or the the heart of their heart, Paul says the diagnosis is the same here. What what we have 
is, is not someone who has life in their heart, in themselves, but death. When we get to verse 2, however, Paul brings in the second side of this picture. So to be dead, you know, to be characterized by sin and evil and wickedness, that, that's really to be dead. But Paul actually says it's worse than this or it's more than this. He, he shows us that our spiritual death is at the same time a kind of hopeless captivity or slavery. And on the face of it, you might think that's a little contradictory because I was just saying those kind of people or people, not normal people in ourselves, were kind of living self-driven lives, like driven by what we want or these kind of desires. They might be sinful, but at least we're in charge. But, but, but Paul says, slow down. Actually, what's really happening is these people, in his words, are following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. So they might think they're being true to themselves, living the life they want to live, but actually they're under the sway of the greatest of evil powers. I'm reminded of Bob Dylan's song. Anybody know what I'm going to say here? You've got to serve somebody. I see a couple nodding. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And that's, that's the truth. So if you widen the scope of this diagnosis, kind of at an individual level, it seems like people are kind of doing what they want. They're stuck in sin. And you know, it's not good, but they're at least doing what they think they want to be doing. But if you were able to kind of step back and put God's glasses on, you'd see that all these people are just pawns of the enemy. He's, he's not strong-arming them and like sending them demons to oppress them necessarily. He's drawing them along the paths of their own appetites and egos. He's kind of making it easy to go down this, this path. So they think they're fulfilling their desires and becoming who they want to be when in fact they're just becoming more enmeshed in his will and at the end of the day actually participating in his plans against the kingdom of God. And of course, another reason we read from Genesis is to remind us that he's been doing that from the very beginning, right? His temptation, he didn't go to Adam and Eve and say, I've got this great plan, let's ruin God's world, and why don't you come and be on my team, and we'll, you know. He said, here, let me help you, Eve, Eve and Adam, let me help you fulfill your agenda, satisfy your deepest desires, become all you can be, don't mind that we're just dismissing God at this moment, and, um, you know, you're a good and smart person, let, let's, don't let anyone limit your full potential, right, but Whose, whose plan was being fulfilled when, when they sinned? At least that temporary plan at that point. It, was, it wasn't Eve or Adam. And that same process is going on every generation, for every people and for every person. When, when someone acquiesces to sin and to, to take any step away from God, they're signing up to be the devil's pawn. And Jesus said the same thing. Pretty directly, everyone who practices sin is a slave 
to sin. And the Apostle John wrote, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And friends, this word to you this morning, to us, is that that isn't life. To lie under the power of the evil one, to be a slave to sin, to follow the prince of darkness, is not to be living a true and genuine life. But there's one more piece to this. Like I said, it's not in these verses, but I think it's uh, important, and it's also in the book of Ephesians, so I think I can pull it in. I'll just read it for you. It's from, well, actually, before I get there, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. Paul, later in Ephesians, tells us that this kind of death that he's speaking of is really, it's really death because it is separation from the life of God. And the life of God is the only thing out there that's genuine life. Ephesians 4, he says this, speaking of unbelievers or Gentiles or people before they encounter Christ. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And the main phrase here is simply alienated from the life of God, separated, cut off, removed from the life of God. Again, echoes of Genesis come in here, right? Because Adam and Eve were created to be in fellowship with God, to be with him, to speak with him, to be uh, unashamed before him, But when they closed their hearts and their minds to him and took the other path, and God comes near, actually. He comes near one more time, and it says the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence. They knew they couldn't be in his presence. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. There's only one real source of life out there, and that's God Himself, which is just a way of saying there's a true, genuine God out there, a creator God who is life. Jesus himself said, it's the Father who has life in himself. Life, capital, you know, capital L, life, life in, in its fullness, life in, in genuine life. And so to have life, we have to be connected with him. We have to be in fellowship, linked with him. And so to be separated, removed, alienated from that source of life, genuine life, is to be in death and headed toward more death. So if I think, I hope you can see also that if we take seriously these verses, which is really just one way of testifying to what the whole Bible says, we can't escape that the conclusion that the true and living God has a much harsher diagnosis than we're usually comfortable thinking about. His assessment of people in our normal state all across the world, here, elsewhere, us and others, is a lot worse than any other religion or philosophy or popular psychology or self-help books are going to tell you about. The God who made us is looking at people who, in our view, can seem to be doing the best they can, getting by in decent, respectable lives, maybe some more than others. And he's seeing, apart from Christ, people who are dead, people driven and motivated and activated by sinful, corrupted hearts, people who are captured under the sway 
of Satan. And maybe at the best, people building their own little kingdoms of self-justification and pride and I'm a decent person while they're still just cut off from the fountain of life who is God himself. It's not, it's not a, uh, easy to hear or easy to think about. And I don't think anyone should accept these kind of truths unless you're really convinced that it's true. But I do want to say, we should believe it's true because God tells us, but I actually want to say something more, which is something that might help us not just say, wow, okay, I think that does seem true. God says it, and as I look around, I can see that reflected in the real world. But something more than that, which is, even though this word is as bad as it gets, it's as as harsh of an analysis of people as we can find, Actually, by the very, the very same token, or because of that, this biblical God-given view of who we are has the most hope and most optimism and gives us the most promise. Because if the world is as messed up and disordered and corrupted as we know it to be, even if our own hearts are as mixed up and corrupted and frail as we know them to be if we think about it is it more hopeful to say there's some sickness you know there's some sickness here we can make some improvements we can treat this or to say actually this is this is just not even worth calling life like this is not real life this is more like ongoing death And the life that God intended for us to live and the life that he has is is radically different and better. Something beautiful, something full of righteousness and wonder and truth and glory. And that's what this message brings with it too. It, It brings with it the reality that what God has intended is much better and and more holy and good than what we know of in the normal systems and society and, and people around us, even people who have been saved and are on the path to life. This is, it's like a trumpet. I, I think of it like a trumpet blast into this world saying, no, what you know of here in the normal way the world works is just a shadow or it's just like an echo of what life was supposed to be like. It's kind of the remnants of what, life was when God made it to be and it's not it's not life as it it should be known and experienced so of course as they say the the bad news quote unquote of the gospel which is what we've seen here is at the same time preparing us to really have hope for something much better it's preparing us for really good news and by the end of verse 3, so we've really mainly just been in those first three verses, we should be worried that Paul is going to move on in his message or in this letter with one of his, uh, one of his classic logical therefores. You know, I think in most translations there's a lot of therefores in Paul. And, and frankly, I like therefores in life in general i think most people do i mean isn't it nice when the world works 
in a therefore sort of way. You know, A happens when A happens, B is supposed to happen. A happened, therefore, B happened. Like, things are supposed to work in a certain proper way. You did a good job at work, therefore, you got a promotion. You studied all semester, therefore, you got good grades. You were lazy, therefore, you didn't get good grades. You cleaned your room, therefore, your mom was happy with you. Um, Life is supposed to work that way. But, of course, if that's how God worked all the time, when we would get past this diagnosis, we should be worried that he and Paul and God would be saying, therefore, what? I mean, he would probably take us back to, to the Genesis and the flood. If God was going to function that way, therefore, God saw this people is really messed up. They've really distorted what I had in, in mind for the world. And it's time to just start over, right? I mean, that would make sense to me if I was in his shoes and say, let's start it over. Let's just clean the slate of all these messed up people and start something new that's just going to work well from the start. And uh, thank God that he doesn't go there. Paul doesn't say therefore here. In fact, what does he say? He says the opposite, right? Two great words in English. I think there are three words in Greek. But God, this is one of those points where God doesn't follow what would be expected, what would be just, really. But God, he chose to act not based on what we deserve, what I deserve, what you deserve, but from what? From the richness of his mercy. But God, despite how much we lost the lovability or any sense of worth, he chose to act out of his great love with which he still loved us. But God, seeing us in sin and corrupted, he chose not to bury us and move on. It says there in verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Of course, it would take other messages to unpack that. That isn't the heart of what I wanted to speak about today. But it is worth saying briefly two ways that the ways God does it. What does it mean that he brings life to dead people? Well, super briefly, first, of course, he provides the rescue, the ransom, that allows escape from just condemnation and the guilt that we do have for being corrupt, sinful people. And he did that at the cost of his own life, the life of his son, Jesus Christ. He took our place. He took our sins. He took all the death, all that deserves death in us. And he said, I'll take that and I'll die in your place so that we who trust him don't have that burden of guilt and the the condemnation of death that we should have. And at the same time, it's not just that, though. At the same time, he reaches into our hearts and he he kind of breaks the chains of the devil that hold everyone in sin. And he takes those things that had been motivating us, these kind of alternative sources of life and motivation and corruption and the, the, you know, the things we were talking about at the beginning. He takes those and he says, That's not worth being at the center of your life. And he puts himself as God, the source of life, the source of goodness, back at the source of our life, 
not perfectly, you know, it's not done yet. We're, none of us are there yet. But for those who he's done that, we have something else motivating the deepest part of our hearts. And that's God himself. His love, his goodness, his glory, his grace, his life is back where it should be, motivating us and, and grounding our life. He, the fountain of life, through Christ specifically, has taken our hearts back again. Well, I said at the start, <clears throat> I, I had really have one main point in this words, which is to, to bring us really face-to-face with this diagnosis of death and say, what is he talking about? Is it true? Is it convincing? Is it, does it matter for us? And I hope... I hope we've seen it's not just empty words or religious exaggeration. It's true to what God has to say, and I think it's true to what we know of the world and ourselves. And as bad as it is, it actually gives us more hope and promise and optimism for what God, uh, for what who we are supposed to be and what this world is supposed to be. That God, at the cost to Himself is on a campaign to bring true and genuine life to everyone who would come to him. What, what might this mean? Maybe to try to bring some practical outflow from this. Um, just to, I hope, to help you, help me move, move from this with some concrete things in mind. First of all, it means, of course, that, and Paul loves to, expound on this it means that we if we're really in christ if we experienced him we're simply trophies of his lavish goodness and grace and as paul loves to say we have no reason or need for boasting or pride there's there's just no place for that if we see what has happened if we were dead and god came in and made us alive the best thing we do is to show off to the whole world the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's not what we did. It's not because we were special. It's not because we had so much potential and we're doing pretty good, just needed some help. And so there's no, there's no place for pride. There's no, re- there's no, we shouldn't be motivated. It, we, we all are sinful and have this, it still creeps back in, but when you step back and really meditate on the truth, there should be nothing left. His pride should be silly after what God has done and the way he does it and gives us his life when we were dead. Second uh, thing that, that ought to come out of this is something, again, Paul and other writers spell out repeatedly, which is sort of a warning or an encouragement, which is to people like you and me, don't give up on the only real source of life in your life, I mean, day to day, to go after things that promise a little satisfaction or a little kind of sliver of life, but really are leading away from God's life and to death. It's not worth it. <laughs> Those things, what they offer is temporary. Whatever kind of sin or whatever it is, it's not going to last. And instead, we can keep coming back to God, his word, to Christ for more of his life. Our whole life ought to be one of coming back to his life in uh, needing it, wanting it, and uh, saying that's better than short-term things that seem enjoyable but are really leading to death. And finally, 
Finally, this is a word for all of us as we step out into the world of people who are far from God. And again, it tells us even if they're decent, they seem to be doing okay, they're satisfied with their life. Again, this is, I was saying at the start, this is my world often in North Africa. People who are doing all right, they're not bad people maybe, but in, in actual fact, they're separated from the life of God. They're under the, the sway and the snare of the devil. Um, their sin is not dealt with, and that is all part of a path of death. This is motivated Paul himself, as he says later in this very letter, to be a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. And he, he pleaded with the Ephesians at the end of this letter that they would pray for him as an ambassador of Christ to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. This is part of his motivation, saying this is a life and death matter. It's wor- and, it, and for that reason, it became worth his life to bring that life. This, this life of God given for us in Christ is the only thing worth being called life. And in a world that is dead and dying, it's what people need to hear. It's what people in villages in North Africa need to hear. It's what people around us in this grocery store and our colleagues and friends. And for every person who's still alive physically in this world, God has not said the final therefore. There will be a final therefore, but he hasn't said it yet. Instead, he's still off. He's still extending that but God offer of grace and mercy and new life. And uh, you and I, the people who have already come into that life through Christ, we're the people he uses to be the means, usually for people to hear that word. Uh, In God, true eternal life is, is really offered to people all around us, no matter how dead they are now. And, uh, He invites us to be part of that offer to them and that source of life or that conduit for that source of life. Would you pray with me briefly as we close? God, we exalt you as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And you're not the God of the dead, but you're the God of the living. Jesus, Son of God, we worship you as the word of life. In you is life, and your life is the light of men. Your light is shown in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And Holy Spirit, we praise you as the Lord and giver of life. It's the Spirit alone who gives life. So living God, we pray, shed your light of life into our hearts again. Renew uh, our deep relationship of faith and trust in you. And let us be part of sending that light out to the world around us that needs to hear. In the name of Jesus, amen.